You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Just beautiful words and a beautiful tune. Uh, let's turn to God's Word to uh, Isaiah. We're very near the end of Isaiah, and uh, we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 66, the last chapter, um, the first few verses of that. We'll see how far we manage to get. Um, and uh, I want to really introduce this by just simply asking, if you had one question that you could have answered today, what would be the most important question for you? I um, listened to an online service, shouldn't have done it, but I did, and the minister came out with, God is not the answer, God is the question. And I think I probably woke up Annabelle with my shouting uh, at that point. I, I just thought, how can people listen to such meaningless waffle? I just, it was, I was just, God is not the answer, God is the question. Okay, what's the answer then? I mean, I just, oh, I'll, I'll tell you straight away, Jesus is the answer. Uh, we've got to find out what the questions are. And I'll tell you what the most important question is, and you may not think this is the most important question, but I hope that as we look at Isaiah 66, you'll see why it is. Here's the most important question that you face. How can you worship God? Now, you may think, well, that, that, hang on, wait a minute. What about my illness? What about my job? What about my happiness? What about a whole bunch of other stuff? And you're saying to me, how can I worship God? Surely that's only for really extremely religious people who want to argue about whether you should stand to pray or sit to pray. Well, think about it this way. Jesus met a woman who had many needs. She had broken relationships. She was ostracized from her community. And Jesus said to her that what God wanted was people who would worship Him in spirit and in truth. In our own catechism, we know, we read that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We struggle, I think, with this and with seeing it as important. And I, and I also think those of us who are Christians, we struggle with this because we don't, I don't think we grasp just quite what worship is. And even when we do, sometimes we have a different object of worship, and even when we worship God, we don't know how to do so, and so we think that our worship of God is very often about ourselves. This is what we like, this is what we want to do. And of course, there's another problem, and that is we think people can't see God, people don't know God, so we've got to make it easier for people to worship God. So let's give them some help. And Actually, if you look through the whole Bible, it is very, very concerned with that particular issue. We do all worship. We, uh, as I remember reading once a phrase, he was a self-made man and he worshipped what he had made. Well, some people do worship themselves. But all of us have different idolatries. There are different things. Um, it may be sports stars. It may be political causes. It may be families. That there could be a whole range of different things. In our culture, we are told that the most important thing is to find yourself. 
But actually, the most important thing is to worship God. And in so worshiping God, you then find yourself. You are never more truly yourself than when you're doing what you're supposed to do, what you are made to do, which is worship God. So, let's look at Isaiah 66 and see how this Isaiah deals with this. This is what the Lord says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. <coughs> Excuse me. First thing about worship, and there are several things I'm going to mention, but I'll try to be as brief as I can be. You can't make God a house. Well, you can, but you can't make him a house that contains him. It was the great question that Solomon asked in his dedication of the temple, 1 Kings 8, 12. Then Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. Can God dwell in a house? Is there such a thing as sacred buildings? The answer could be yes. But the question here is where? Because you'll see what Isaiah does. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. So how are you going to build a house when my footstool is just the earth? In Acts 7.49, Stephen quotes these verses as he's about to be killed by religious people. In Acts 17, Paul tells the Athenians that God does not dwell in a temple built by human hands. The image that Isaiah is using here is of a world where if you were a king, the throne was on high and you needed a footstool to get up to the throne. And what we're being told here about God is, sure, you can build a house for me, but the earth is my footstool. So how is this house going to contain me? Incidentally, if you know your Bibles, you will know that sometimes in the prophets and in the Psalms, the temple is referred to as a footstool. But here's the earth. Will God really dwell on earth? First Kings 8.27. The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Now, why is all that important? Because being in this building is not being in the house of God, saying that this is where God is, and the minute you go out of it, he's not there. Or he's not at home or elsewhere. Now, I wouldn't go so far as to say, as some people do, oh, it doesn't matter, the building is just a building. Actually, no. Uh, there is a, a theology of place, I would call it. I think this is a special building, personally. I love being in this building for lots of reasons. Um, I'm very interested in McShane and all the rest of it. And I think God sometimes does put his mark on a place. So, I wouldn't despise that. But what I would say is this, that um, this isn't where God lives. I mean, uh, some of you, I've told you this before, but this is one of my favorite stories from the kids. I, I heard uh, three of the kids talking one time, and they were talking about going up the balcony, which they're not allowed. And one of them said, oh, let's go up to the balcony. And they said, no, we can't go up there. Why can't we go up there? Because that's where God lives. So, I didn't want to disillusion them, but I did have to correct their theology. Um, although I still didn't want them to go up to the balcony. But he doesn't. But here's another thing I think that we do. I think we think that God is contained within our ceremonies. Calvin says this, God cares nothing about ceremonies, but they are empty and useless masks 
when men think they satisfy God by means of them. How many people will go to worship in Christian churches today and think that merely by crossing themselves or singing a song or bowing in prayer or saying amen after a reading of Scripture that they are pleasing God? Go, no, how, how that, doesn't, that cannot possibly work. So, we begin by simply saying, God is beyond the way that we think we can contain Him. Does that mean it's impossible to worship Him? No. But here's another negative, if you like. These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. God's house is with the humble. God's house is with the lowly. The higher you lift yourself up, the less you will see God. And here is the paradox. Supposing you came in here this morning and you almost felt, I don't want to be here. I don't deserve to be here. I don't know what I'm doing here. This seems really strange. And maybe you're one of these people who looks around and you see other people say, oh, they're great and they're good and they're, and who am I? I'm nobody. I'm nothing. Here's the paradox. If I came in this morning and said, I'm the minister and I'm teaching God's word and isn't this brilliant and and I great. You're closer to God than me because my attitude would take away completely from the glory of God. He trembles at God's word. There's a spiritual sensitivity. Again, forgive me for quoting Calvin. Uh, somebody asked me the other week, is that anything to do with Hobbes? No, but <laughs> I will, I'll tell you about that another time. Um, Calvin says this, many boast that they reverence and fear God. But by disregarding his word, they at the same time show that they are despisers of God. All the reverence that we owe to God must be paid to his word in which which he wishes to be fully recognized as in a lively image. It's quite astonishing and for me, absolutely chilling. And actually to the extent that now I can't do it. That you go into a place of worship, a place of Christian worship, and someone stands up and sings great hymns and reads God's Word and then stands up and preaches against God's Word and says, this is not what's really meant or this is not what's to to happen today. And I I feel that myself so much that now I, I either stand up and say rubbish or I walk out because it's just appalling. It's, it's, it does make you tremble when people do that with God. When we come to worship, we bow before Him in worship. We worship Him, not ourselves. And to do that, we need a self-awareness of our own sin, and we need to be sensitive to His Word. So, worshiping God, we can't contain Him. Worshiping God, we come in humility. Worshiping God, you may think, ah, this has got nothing to do with me, but wait a minute, you'll see. Whoever sacrifices a bull is like one who kills a person. Whoever offers a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. Whoever makes a grain offering is like one who presents pig's blood, and whoever burns memorial incense is like one who worships an idol. They've chosen their own ways, and they delight in their own abominations. Here's a third kind of negative. We can't worship God our own way. Now, paradoxically, I think we've got a lot of evangelical churches who will say, yeah, yeah, we worship God, we worship the God of the Bible, we believe the Bible, but how we do it is irrelevant. That's just form. And the answer is no. How we do it is absolutely essential. In Isaiah 1.13, 
We read this, stop bringing meaningless offerings, says God. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Or in Jeremiah 7.21, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, go ahead, add your burnt offerings to your other sacrifices and eat the meat yourselves. What Isaiah does here, you see those verses, he makes four contrasts. You slaughter a bull, but you kill a man. Slaughtering a bull was um, the you know, part of the sacrificial system. So they were doing what God said, but that they killed human beings. You sacrifice a lamb, but strangle a dog. Say, so what does that mean? Well, what God is saying is it's meaningless. You're sacrificing a lamb, and then you're just adding something else. You give a gift of grain, which is good, and you give a gift of pig's blood, which is mockery. You burn memorial incense, and you set up an idol. There are Christians today who think that syncretism, and syncretism is mixing different worship, different ways. I think that's a good way to go because it shows we're tolerant and so on. We have to worship God in the way that He wants us to, not in our way. Now, I was thinking about this, and um, last Sunday evening, you forgive a word of personal testimony, I wasn't able to be here because of, of illness and um, I listened to the sermon afterwards, but it's not the same as, as being here. And I was a bit frustrated, so I, uh, as one does, I sat down at the fire and opened up a guy called John Owen, a book on the glory of Christ. Now, it's one of those things that you really, really have to concentrate on. So I did, and about five minutes into it, it was just, for me, it was very, very close to like being in heaven because he helped me understand something that I kind of knew but didn't understand, if that makes sense. And he was just talking about this subject of how important it is how we worship God. And I'll, I'll not give you all his language because it's very dated and complex, but summary is this. We were created in God's image, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness to have communion with God. And originally, human beings, our worship was perfect. We were, we were connected with God. But after we turned away from God, after the fall, worship became for us impossible. Why? Because we live in a broken world and we ourselves are broken. If I tell you you've got to come and worship God humbly, how do you do that? Because the minute you stand up and say, I'm worshiping God humbly, you're being proud. You know, if I told you I'm the most humble preacher I know, you, you immediately know how, what rubbish that is. And even if you don't say it and you think it, so, I mean, we're such a mess. Here's the thing, it's not if you just, you might, supposing you just come in off the street and you've never been in church in your life and you've just been just, had a rotten week in lots of different things that you've done, and you might think, well, David, you're more worthy to worship God than I am. The answer is no, I'm not, because you don't know what goes on in my heart and mind, and sometimes I don't even know what goes on in it. We are broken people in a broken world. We're blind, we're dead in sins, we're proud, we're self-absorbed. How can we worship a holy God? We can't. But why are we all so religious then? Because most human societies are. We're still made in the image of God. We have this God-shaped hole. We feel this desire to worship. We see God in the creation in some way or other. I'm just reading a wonderful book just now about a guy who wandered on a pilgrimage through Harris and Lewis. And it's just a wonderful, confused mess of appreciating and enjoying Christians, which is very good of him, but also he's into Druidism and Hinduism and everything else, and he sees it everywhere. And I mean, I'm, I love the book, and I love what I'm reading, 
Uh, and I keep saying, oh, you, you get all the different dots, but you're not able to join them together. And we do that sometimes. We see God in creation, and we think, well, okay, we can get to God that way, so we make representations of God and we, uh, so that we can better understand God. And that's why human beings go religious, because every single religion is an attempt for humanity to reach up to God. And every single religion fails. Because in doing that, we take away from God. We make representations of God so we can better understand God, but that obscures and takes us away. Our pride then leads to idolatry, and we, we lose all knowledge of God. And here's the thing. We lose knowledge of God, not because of atheism, but because of religion. Religion often takes us away from the worship of the one true God, which is why in the Bible, you don't get much mention of atheism. You do. It did exist, and it is mentioned. But you get far more mention of idolatry and false religion. And Owen points this out. He says, the reason we cannot worship God properly, and indeed the reason that we fail, is because we are not in union with God. And we need to be in union with God, because otherwise our worship will always be tainted. And that's why God sends Jesus. God sends Jesus to do what we could not do. God sends Jesus to live a perfect life. God sends Jesus to pay for our sin. And above all, God sends Jesus to unite us to Christ. And Owen quotes Irenaeus, so he saved in himself in the end what perished in Adam in the beginning. What Christ does, Irenaeus, the early church father, what Christ does is he redeems and saves humanity. And then this, I love this, Jesus Christ, the word of God, who from his own infinite love was made what we are, that he might make us what he is. See, Jesus became a human being. And Jesus suffered as a human being. And Jesus was tempted in every way, as we are, as a human being. Why? So that we might become what he is. Not that we become God, but that we are in union with Christ, the sons and daughters of God. You can't really worship God unless you have that relationship with Him. So the key to worshiping God is to know Christ, to believe in Christ, to be in Christ. And here's the thing, anything that obscures Christ is to be removed. Sorry for quoting Calvin again, but I just love this. It is easy to reply that when men endeavor to appease God according to their own fancy, they frame an idol that is altogether contrary to His majesty. Relying on their useless ceremonies, they thought they had performed their duty well when they went frequently to the temple and offered it in prayers and sacrifices. The prophet shows that the majesty of God must not be measured by this standard, and all that they bring forward, unaccompanied by purity of heart, are absolute trifles. For since it is evident from his dwelling place being in heaven that the nature of God is spiritual, if the worship do not co correspond to that nature, it is undoubtedly wicked and corrupted. Our worship has to be spiritual. We come into the presence of God. There's much more that could be said, but I better move on fairly quickly. Um, we need to listen to God and respond. So I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring on them what they dread. For when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, no one listened. They did evil in my sight and did what displeases me. God says, they've chosen, I will choose. 
we think we can just go to God with our worship that we have chosen and not listen to Him, and God does not hear us. They did not listen. They did not choose Him, so He will reject them. The most frightening thing that God can ever do for any one of us is give us what we demand and what we want. We invent our own gods. We invent our own images. We invent our own rules. We are the great God of our society, autonomous. I will decide when I die. I will decide what I do. And the worst thing that God can do is to say, right, you decide. And you watch the hell that our society will descend into if that happens. That's not how we were made. We need to listen to God. And then we must, can we move on for me, please? Stephanie, I think I'm stuck. There it is. Here, oh no, back one. (laughs) Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your own people who hate you and exclude you because of my name have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. Yes, they will be put to shame. Hear that uproar from the city. Hear that noise from the temple. It is the sound of the Lord repaying his enemies all they deserve. When we worship God, we have to avoid hypocrisy. Here, we've been told about brothers who hate you. It's not the way it should be. And here's something very simple about worshiping God. You cannot say you love God whom you have not seen whilst you hate your brother whom you have seen. You can't. And I know what it's like and you know what it's like to be frustrated and angry and bitter and hurt and wounded by another Christian. But you remember the Lord's prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors or forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Churches are destroyed by disunity and they are destroyed by people who hate one another. And God sees that as just abject hypocrisy. Now that doesn't mean a false love. And what I mean by a false love is the kind of love that says, oh, you just accept everyone the way that they are and whatever they do. That's not what it means. Because there are false brothers and sisters. And that is the detriment of every church. I mean, all of us have sin, but there are people, and sadly, often amongst teachers of God's Word, who turn people away from that Word. Alec Motier says this, exclusion was based both on rejection of what the word tremblers understood by the name on a, on a, and on infatuation with what the others wished the name to mean. They really thought that the name of the Lord was more truly understood and more perfectly honored in their self-chosen theologies than by loyalty to the Lord's Word. Please be very wary of people who say to you, the Spirit is leading us this way. You hear it paradoxically in the more extreme charismatic churches and in extreme liberal churches. And they both use the same language. The Spirit is leading us this way. The Spirit never leads contrary to the Word of God. And we have to be careful in that. Another man, I can't remember who it was, said this. I just thought it was just very powerful. Religion that loses its anchorage in the Word of God either becomes pathetically ineffective or turns into a monster. But the Lord remembers His people. The Lord remembers those who are faithful. I don't know if you saw, there's maybe no reason for you to have seen the Anglican Synod this week, which was discussing the issue of homosexuality. And there's a wonderful wee clip from a man called Sam Albury, I know fairly well. Sam is an an Anglican vicar, and he would describe himself as same-sex attracted. And he stood up and he said this, and he said, I feel bullied in this church because you are not honoring the Word of God. 
I'm trying to be faithful to the word of God, and you're turning away from it. And it was, I mean, for me, it was just an extraordinarily moving thing that, that he did. And he was right. We don't. You know, this obsession with sexuality that the society and sometimes the church has, it's crazy. We don't look at you and say, what's your sexuality? If you would identify as homosexual or, or as um, same-sex attracted, you have exactly the same needs as all the rest of us to come to know Jesus. People are not saved because they're heterosexual. We're saved because we come to Christ. When we come to Christ, we will go by what Christ says, of course. That's what Sam was trying to say. But he's saying, you're making it difficult for me because I'm trying to follow Jesus, and you're saying to me, let's ignore the Bible. That's hard. And then, before she goes into labor, she gives birth. Before the pains come upon her, she delivers a son. Who has ever heard of such a thing? Who has ever seen things like this? Can a country be born in a day? Or a nation be brought forth in a moment, yet no sooner is Zion in labor than she gives birth to her children. Do I bring to the moment of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? Do I close up the womb when I bring to delivery, says your God? Now, some people would argue this is about the end times. It possibly is. The nation brought forth in a moment. Go back to what was said about how you can only worship God if you're in union with God. You can't even see the kingdom of God, says Jesus, unless you are born again, unless you are born from above. That's not something that you do. That's something that God does. But God does it. That's the point of what's being said here. Earlier in Isaiah 37, verse 3, they told him, this is what Hezekiah says, this day is a day of distress and rebuke and disgrace as when children come to the moment of birth and there's no strength to deliver them. But God says, I will deliver. The CU have just had a mission and um, it's wonderful being able to share God's word, but I'll tell you this, I love it when I see students getting excited because of a friend or someone else who's become a believer because of that mission, and so they should rejoice. We need more of that kind of rejoicing because they have come from death to life, and you've sown the seed, and you've sown the seed, and you've sown the seed, and when God brings it to fruition, you rejoice because this promise is being fulfilled. Galatians 4.26, the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. It's talking here about the birth of a new community. We always owe a debt, of course, to Jerusalem and to the Jewish people. But here, what it's talking about is those who are able to go to the God whose heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool because they have come to know Jesus Christ and they are brothers and sisters with Jesus Christ. That's, when we talk about Charleston, we've got, the development plan is great, it's wonderful, right? I'm not decrying that at all. In fact, I've, I have a copy of it, I read it every now and then because it really encourages me and moves me. But I know that everything we do in Charleston is a complete waste of time. No matter who does it, no matter what we do, unless the Spirit of God works and people in Charleston are born from above. And when that happens, nothing will stop that work. And that's what we believe God will do. That's why we put all this effort into it. Not because we can do anything, but because He does. He brings new birth. And there is joy. Rejoice with Jerusalem. Be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice greatly with you, with her, all you who mourn over her. For you will nurse and be satisfied at her comforting breasts. You will drink deeply and delight in her overflowing abundance. 
You have come, says the writer to the Hebrews, to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Do you understand what we're doing when we're worshiping and singing praise to God? We're not on our own. We're with thousands and thousands and thousands of angels. There is feeding. The language to us would seem a bit crude because the the language says the nipple of her glory. And it's just talking about humanity, God's people being fed by God. And there's joy. There's new birth and there's joy. That's how, you know, joy in the worship of God is not people clapping their hands, though not only is that perfectly permissible, it's commanded. So get on with it, you Presbyterians. But it's not just people clapping their hands. It's not just um, raising your arms. It's not just smiling and laughter. None of those things, of course, are wrong. But it's not just those. I'm often quite amazed when you see things like you have a talent show, like Britain's Got Talent or um, The X Factor, and along comes this gospel choir And these kind of godless pagans who mock God say, oh, isn't that wonderful? Isn't that great? And they all want to join in. And Christians go, isn't that great that they think it's great? And I'm going, actually, no, it's not. Because they don't know who God is. And the real joy from the Lord is is, is from knowing the Lord. And you can express that joy in so many ways. But it's absolutely there. The worship of God is joyful. And finally, it brings peace. For this is what the Lord says, I will extend peace to her like a river and the wealth of nations like a flooding stream. You will nurse and be carried on her arm and dandled on her knees. As a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you and you will be comforted over Jerusalem. It's not right. It's not right to take away God as father and say we've got to have gender neutral language. But in reaction against that, it's also not right to say that God is male, because male and female, that's not. Both male and female are made in God's image. But this is one of these images that is just extraordinary. Like a mother, like a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you. You may go through the most intense sorrow and bitterness, and brokenness, and heartache, and struggle, and doubts, and fears. And the devil will tell you that God is slapping you, that God is being cruel to you. And Isaiah says, listen, in all this sorrow that Jerusalem has had, in all this pain, in all this suffering, I sit you on my knee, and I comfort you, like a mother comforts her child. This is what it is to worship our God. Not someone who is distant and far off, who doesn't know what we feel. Not someone who kind of plays games with us. But someone who has come in the person of Jesus Christ. And as we get to know Christ, and as we love Christ, and as we serve Christ, we come to experience God in this way so that even in the worst of circumstances, there is peace. Peace like a river.
Some of you are well able to identify with the troubles coming in like a river, one thing after the other, one thing after the other, one thing after the other. But peace like a river, that's something different. And again, I'll go back to the book I'm reading just now. It talks about peace, talks about all the spiritual things, but you don't get real spirituality without the Holy Spirit, and you don't get real peace without the peace of Christ. And that's why it's so precious. Solid joys and lasting treasures, none but Zion's children know. So you can't build a house to God. You can't build a stairway to heaven. You can't make your own way to God. You can't say to God, I'm going to do this and you're going to accept me. You can't do any of that. It's way beyond what you or I could do. And maybe you need to stop thinking about what you can do and you need to stop thinking about what you want and you need instead to listen to what God says. And you need to tremble at his word. And you need to realize the hypocrisy and the pride that exists in every one of our hearts, no matter who we are. And we need to look at who God says He is and how He wants to be worshipped. And we need to cry out with all our being, Lord, show us Jesus. Show me Jesus. I've got nothing. And the paradox or the, the wonderful thing is, that everything changes when you know Christ, His Word, singing His praise. I find it really difficult uh, being here this morning, by the way, because I know my mother, she was here a few weeks ago, my voice wasn't good, and when I went out, being typical mother, or at least typical my mother, uh, maybe I shouldn't judge the rest by that, she said, oh, for goodness sake, what were you doing singing? You need your voice for preaching, don't sing again. <laughs> Thanks, mum. <laughs> but I find it difficult because when I see the words and I hear you sing, I just want to join in. Because it's just so beautiful and wonderful to be able to worship Jesus together in spirit and in truth. And that's what's on offer for all of us. Here, maybe for the first time, you can know this Jesus. He's for you. He's not contained in this building to this particular group. You're here, maybe for the thousandth time. And the temptation is just to walk away again and again and again. Say, don't. Don't walk away from Jesus. Accept what he says. Make it your absolute ambition, your purpose in life, to glorify him, to enjoy him, to know him forever. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We ask that you would bless it to us, and we ask that as we have heard it, that we would respond to it by coming to you and by knowing that you are the rock of ages who was broken apart for us, that we can hide ourselves in you. In your name, amen. We're going to sing close uh, by... Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity at solas.org.
solace-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solace-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.